Well, we are continuing in our series on the book of Judges. Uh, we are four weeks in, I think. That's about right. Uh, we're going to be in Judges chapter 3 today, so if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Judges chapter 3. It'll also pop up on the screen here. You can follow along with us there. Um, and uh, today, we are getting into this topic of an Eglon in my life. Um, our, what is it? The senior high guys um, have been doing a Bible study on Sunday mornings. Uh, where they are prepping themselves for the sermon. And so um, one of these days, maybe I'll have one of them come up here and share the front half of the sermon, and then I'll do the what difference does it make. How about that? Um, anyhow, they all looked at me like, hmm? Um, well, uh, let's, uh, let's stand and read together. Judges chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read verses 12 through 14. So let's stand and read together God's Word. Um, I was just this past week working through uh, one of my online classes, and so one of my students I shared with them about how, or well, rather with the class, uh, that God's word is infallible, that God's word is inerrant, infallible meaning that there's no falsehoods in what it teaches, that everything that it teaches doctrinally is correct, and also that it's inerrant, that there are no errors in it. Um, and one of my students challenged me on this, and my response to the student went something like this, that there is so much confusion in our culture these days. And got her to admit, and we came up with some examples of how there's so much confusion in it. And I said, here is our opportunity to say to the culture, and this is why we stand up each week, to say, this is truth. To a world that is just, I mean, our world is just upside down and confused. Black is white, white is black. And to say to that culture, hey, look, here is the standard. This is truth. The Bible represents God's truth in written Form, and so we stand each week to recognize that. All right, so let's read together. Judges chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 14. Let's read together. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, in the, gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. You may be seated. All right, so what we're reading right here is a pattern that establishes throughout the rest of the book of Judges. And it's this pattern where the Israelites, if you look at verse 12, it says, Once again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the pattern always begins with the Israelites doing evil, uh, becoming uh, enamored with sin, and getting involved in sin. And then the next thing you know, uh, some foreign power or some pestilence, or whatever it might be, comes on the Israelites, frustrates them, and then they cry out to God. So let's go through these verses together. Verse 12, it says, Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, on this specific occasion, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now let's stop right there and take a look at our map and figure out who, where Moab is and who this king Eglon is. And so if you look at our map, you can see there on the far right side where Reuben is established to the east of the, of, the, uh, of the Dead Sea. Within that area, that space, was also a people group known as the Moabites. Um, or just south of there was a people group known as the Moabites. And the king of these, this people group was somebody called Eglon. And so the Israelites, over the course of biblical history, because of the proximity of Moab to Israel, they were in and out of conflict with the Moabites and with their various kings. Their, their king at this point in history was a guy named Eglon, and God says that he gave Eglon power over the Israelites. Yes, that's right. God gave a foreign evil power, 
power over top of uh, Israel, to persecute Israel, to, to discipline Israel, to bring frustrating times upon the land of Israel. Let's take a look at verse 13. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. These are two other people groups uh, that fought with the Israelites. So Moab gets, um, gets some help. And, uh, and Eglon attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms is a reference uh, to the city of Jericho. Now, you know a little bit of biblical history here. Take a look at our map one more time. Jericho is situated nine miles west of the Jordan River, right where the Jordan River connects with uh, the Dead Sea, where it pours into the Dead Sea. And so uh, the Israelites, if you remember, under Joshua, crossed over the Red Sea, traveling toward the west, into the Promised Land. The first city that they came to was the city of Jericho, that's right, or the city of Palms. Y'all are with me today, that's good. Or the city of Palms, and so they circle that city, and you remember the biblical story, how they marched around the city seven times in seven days. On the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. The city walls fell down. The Israelites rushed in, and they took out the local population, uh, decimated the population, and then went on to the next city. Well, so Jericho was under Israelite control until verse 13 here. Uh, now the Moabites have come, they've crossed the river, and they've taken Jericho back. They're now using Jericho as an outpost, as a fort on the other side of the river from which they can strike into the heart of the nation of Israel. Look at verse 14. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So for 18 years, the Israelites dealt with this king, Eglon, uh, with an outpost, with a fort inside of their land, inside of their territory. For 18 years, Eglon sent invading armies into the inside of the heart of Israel. He wreaked havoc in Israel. He stole from their farms. He forced them to pay tribute to him. He forced them into slave labor over the course of 18 years. He was a bully living in their backyard, a constant threat. He was an uncontested enemy for 18 years there in Jericho. Verse 15, at the end of the 18 years... The Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they gave, and God gave them a deliverer, a guy named Ehud, a left-hander. He was the son of Gera the Benjamite. Now, if uh, I don't think we have that slide, but anyhow, several weeks ago I shared with you that the first Jew was a guy named Abraham. We call him Father Abraham because he's the the father of the Jewish nation, the father of the Israelites. Abraham had a son. His son was named Isaac. Isaac had a son. His son was named Jacob. There were other children, but Jacob had a brother. But anyhow, Jacob was the one through which the nation of Israel would come. Jacob's name was later renamed Israel, Okay, which is where we get the name Israel from. Israel, or Jacob, had 12 sons, and one of these 12 sons was a guy named Benjamin. Benjamin was a left-hander, and so apparently left-handedness runs in the family. I shared all that with you just to tell you that, but in any case... So um, verse 16, now Ehud made, or Ehud made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh underneath of his clothing. Uh, because as a left-hander, what he would do is he would reach across his body to grab his sword off of his left thigh to be able to brandish this sword. Uh, you wouldn't, if you're a right-hander, put your sword on your right thigh because as you're bringing it up, you're exposed. You'd reach across your body, and there you could defend or be ready to, as uh, Cole said this morning, to take somebody out. So um, in any case, um, you'll notice as you read through here uh, that he has this sword strapped to his left, uh, left thigh, he's a left, or his right thigh. He's a left-hander. Verse 17. So uh, Ehud presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. And you'll notice that as you read through this passage, 
that it makes mention of how large Eglon is. It kind of plays on this several times uh, to the point of uh, being, you know, kind of like, okay, well, the Bible's trying to make some kind of point here. And the point that it's making is back then in biblical times, they didn't have McDonald's drive through all right? So in order for, for somebody to be as large as apparently this guy was, I mean, he really had to work at this, and so it's a symbol of his greed, okay? Uh, because back then, there was no such things as overweight Israelites or overweight Moabites. It just didn't happen, um, just for the lack of, lack of uh, nutrition and, and food and that sort of thing. Um, so the point being there that he was a greedy guy. Skip on down to verse 20. So Ehud leaves, and then he returns, and he comes back, he says, with a secret message for King Eglon. Eglon dismisses all of his servants out of the room, verse 20. Then Ehud then um, <clears throat> approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message for you from God. As the king rose from his seat, verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. All right, it's pretty disgusting stuff here. I won't read the next verse, but basically he shoved his sword all the way through this guy. Verse 23, then Ehud went to the porch, he shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. And so one of the questions is, why then does Ehud lock the doors to this upper room where he had just killed the king? Well, he's thinking in his head, if I can lock the doors, then I can keep the servants out, because the Ehud, uh, Eglon has dismissed all the servants. He sent everybody out because he wanted to hear this secret message. <clears throat> and so Ehud thinks, well, if I lock the doors, I can keep the servants out, maybe I can... Uh, you know, afford that much more time to escape. And that's what takes place in the story. Um, so that, and that's, that's what happens. The king's, the king's attendants come, they're knocking on the door, they want to get in, and they don't hear anything, and they think to themselves, well, maybe he's off, you know, using the restroom or something like that. And so then they, um, after a little while goes by, and they come back, they knock on the door again. Finally, they burst through the door, and they find the king, Eglon, there, lying dead on the floor. And Ehud is long gone. Skip on down to verse 27. We'll catch the end of the story here. Verse 27. Ehud blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Do you have our map? Maybe we can flip back over to our map really quick. Um, so Ehud goes up into the hill country, up above Jer Jericho. Jericho is situated, like I said, nine miles west of the Jordan River, up against the hills, and Jerusalem is way up into those hills somewhere, uh, a little bit further off. And uh, so he goes up into the hill country, and he blows his trumpet, and he gets a bunch of Israelites to come, and they descend out of the hills toward Jerusalem, and they, so with Eglon, the king already dead, and they push this army of 10,000 men up against the river, Jordan River, and they decimate the army there. Verse 29, at that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. All right, so that wraps up our story for today, which means it's time to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, hey, Gordon, you know, uh, I'm not paying tribute to anybody. Um, what difference, I mean, I'm not an Israelite, I'm not a Moabite or any of these other ites. Uh, what difference does any of this stuff make to me? Well, let's talk about that. It's a good question. Um, look again at verse 12 with me. Look again at verse 12. Verse 12 tells us why Eglon showed up uh, and was given power over Israel in the first place. Look at verse 12. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because of this, because they did evil, it repeats the same phrase again, because they did evil in, in, the, in the eyes of the Lord, God gave Eglon power 
over Israel. See, what this verse teaches us, it teaches us a biblical principle. It teaches us that God is not above using foreign powers to bring his people to their knees. God is not above bringing difficult circumstances or or situations that are frustrating in our lives that bring us to a point where we're broken, to bring us to a point where we, like the Israelites, are ready to cry out to God. God, okay, I I get it. I've had enough. I'm ready to cry out to you. Circumstances that frustrate us, that drive us to our knees, circumstances that rule over our lives, that bring us to the breaking point, circumstances that implore us to cry out to God. And we see this pattern happening over and over again all throughout the book of Judges. The people begin to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then God sends some foreign power, or maybe for you it's the washing machine blues. I don't know. But God sends some foreign power to Israel to cause frustration in their lives, to break them of their, de- of their independence of God and bring them to a place where they're broken before him, where they're ready to cry out to him. And this is not just here in the book of Judges. Remember a guy by the name of Jonah in the Old Testament? Jonah decided he wasn't going to do what God asked him to do. And so Jonah jumped on a boat, and he was heading in the opposite direction when God sent him a whale, which reminds us that God is way more persistent, friends, than you and I are stubborn. Uh, The Israelites wandered around in the desert for 40 years. Part of that was God's discipline, but part of that also was God breaking the Israelites of their independence of him and creating a dependency, rather, on him. God uses circumstances in our lives, friends, to bring us to the point when we are ready to cry out to God. Now, I just want to throw a little caveat in here, and I just want to say that all the bad things that happen in our lives are not the result of God trying to break us. I want to be clear about that. Some of the bad things that happen in our lives are the result of just we live in a fallen world. But sometimes when things just keep getting worse and keep getting worse and it just keeps coming and there's no relief, we have to stop and ask ourselves, okay, God, are you trying to get my attention? Is there something, some disobedience in my life? Is there something going on here? that I need to correct or that I need to get right. And there's a biblical principle here that says that God is not above. He is willing to allow difficult circumstances to enter into our lives in order to bring us to that breaking point when we'll cry out to him. And the Israelites experienced this disciplining of God for 18 years, and finally they were ready to cry out to God for him to send them a deliverer. They loved their sin for 18 years. And finally, they got to the point where they were ready to say, okay, God, we don't love it this much anymore. You say, okay, Gordon, I understand that, but could you do me a favor? Could you put some handles on this thing? Could you help me understand what exactly it looks like in real life to cry out to God? Because maybe I have some circumstances going on in my life that are frustrating me, that are difficult for me, that maybe it's some stuff that God has sent me an egg line of sorts in my life. And uh, what does it mean? I mean, because I'd like to get relief from that. I, I mean, God sent Israel to deliver. I'd take a deliverer too. And so God, you know, what does it look like then uh, for me to cry out to him? Uh, does that mean that I'm supposed to shout to God? Does it supposed to mean that I'm supposed to go beg God? Does it mean that I'm supposed to fast? Does it mean that I'm supposed to not take a shower for a month? I mean, what is God looking for, right? I mean, practically, what does this look like? Well, I got four things for you of what it looks like 
to cry out to God. Four things of what it looks like to cry out to God. And friends, when we cry out to God in this way, and we see this here in the text, it is the thing that precipitates relief. It is the thing that precipitates God's mercy. It activates God's mercy, crying out to him. And so specifically, what is it? What are the four things um, practically that we're talking about when we talk about crying out to God? Number one, we're talking about, number one, avoiding a victim mentality. Avoiding a victim mentality. Avoid saying, woe is me, right? Everybody's against me, and the world's such a horrible, hard place. Difficult. No, don't go there. You know, it's a vast right-wing conspiracy. No, that's not, what, that's not what's done this. Um, that's the wrong place to start. We need to avoid the, mix, uh, the victim mentality. People who are taking responsibility for their actions don't talk like that. People who are taking responsibility for their actions focus on what they did that got them in this mess, not on what other people around them have done that created the mess that they're in. And, uh, and what that does is it says that you're owning your problems. It says that you're not a victim, but rather, hey, look, this is my stuff. This is the situation that I got myself into. And so it's taking responsibility for, what, uh, for the situation that you're in, not um, avoiding the victim mentality, not blaming it on somebody else. Number two. A second way that we can cry out to God, what this looks like practically is that we need to save our explanations for later. Save your explanations for later. You know, you may have a perfectly legitimate reason uh, why, you know, whatever happened, why you acted like you did or why you thought you were doing the right thing. But let me tell you something. When you're taking responsibility, when you're crying out to the God, when you come to the point of being broken and saying, okay, God, I'm going to go your way. When you're ready to take that kind of a step, it is the wrong time for explanations. Whether you're talking to God or you're talking to somebody else, it's the wrong time for explanations. Nobody wants to hear your explanations. Nobody wants to know why you did what you did. Nobody wants to dig deep into your rationale. All they care about is, are you sorry that you did it? And are you ready to accept the responsibility for your actions? If you're standing there making excuses, friends, if you're trying to explain your actions to, the, uh, to somebody, then that tells that person one thing. It says you're not taking responsibility for what's happened. The time for explaining yourself may come later, or it may not. Regardless, you're willing to say, okay, you know what? Explanations, if the opportunity presents itself, I'll explain. If not, I'm just going to save it for later regardless. Uh, principle number three, third thing for you to do to cry out to God in authenticity, is if you want to accept, uh, if you want to do that, don't spare yourself, don't coddle yourself in the way that you name what you did. It wasn't that you slept together. It was that you committed adultery. It wasn't that you slept together with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It's that you fornicated. That's what you did. Don't soften what it was that you did with the language that you used. It wasn't that you misspoke. It was that you lied. That's what you did. It wasn't that traffic was bad. It's that you arrived late. Those are very subtle ways, friends, of sidestepping responsibility. And that, friends, is the biggest problem in our culture today. You say, how is that? Well, nobody wants to take full responsibility for anything anymore. Nobody wants to be told, hey, you know what? You were wrong. And to admit, I was wrong. We want to come up with excuses. We want to run out the litany of stuff. 
that explains, oh, well, this is why I did what I did, or this is why I'm in the situation that I was in. You know, the church needs to stand and declare to the human race, this is what we're supposed to be doing, supposed to be leading people to repentance. And if you're here this morning, you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ. You've never entered into a real and personal relationship with him. This is the beginning point of entering into a real and personal relationship with Jesus. It's admitting that you're wrong. Romans tells us, three, chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us, the Bible tells us that we have a sin problem, and that sin problem is not something that we can fix ourselves. God has created a solution for that sin problem, and we're to turn to God to solve that problem for us. And the way that that problem is solved is by turning the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for our sins, admitting that we have this sin-stained heart that we can't fix, and turning to God for the remedy. That's where a relationship with Jesus starts. It starts with admitting that we can't solve the problem and taking responsibility for it in that way. That's a hard message for people to hear, though. People don't want to hear that they were wrong. Um, because we as human beings want to wait 18 years or more to admit that we're wrong. When we've done wrong, friends, uh, we need to take responsibility. We need to own our stuff. And so we need to take the, and so taking the edge off of what we did by trying to soften it with language is the wrong approach. Part of owning what you did is saying what you did without any sort of softening in language. Don't spare yourself the naming of what you did. Um, that may cut it, friends, in politics. I misspoke. But that will not cut it with God. He knows what you did. Number four, and I'm done. Direct all consequences for your actions squarely at yourself. Direct all consequences for your actions squarely at yourself. Say, Lord, you know what? This mess that I'm a part of, this mess that I'm in, I know it's affected other people. I know it's hurt other people. And so, Lord, I will commit myself to making reparations, to trying, making it right, and as much as it is in my power to do so with the people that I have hurt. To lessen the hurt, perhaps, to lessen the pain, perhaps, to lessen the affliction that other people feel as a result of my actions. Lord, I commit myself to cleaning up my own mess. Years ago, I was a college student, and um, I, my sophomore year, wanted to do something big, right? And so I devised a little uh, trickery, tomfoolery, whatever you want to call it, of, uh, I, was, I went down to one of the neighboring halls, and we have one we have community bathroom in the middle of the hall, and so I went down to one of the neighboring halls, and I plugged up the drains in the middle of the bathroom, and I turned the shower heads on full blast, so they blow outside the shower door, and it flooded onto the, onto the floor of the basement, on, onto the floor of the restroom, with the, with the drain clogged up, and I thought, you know what? Uh, it'll go underneath there and flood out into the hallway, and those guys will wake up in the morning, and ha, 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 they'll have a wet carpet in their hallway. Well, that was about 4 o'clock in the morning when I did that. College guys don't wake up early. So it was about 6 o'clock, 6.30, before the first guys woke up. And, they got, they, and the thing is, they didn't just wake up out of their beds and walk out in the hallway and feel the wet floor. They got out of their bed in the morning in their room, and things were wet. Yeah, somebody said it. Uh, I was right. And uh, so anyhow, a whole bunch of water spilled out. Not only did I do this on the fourth floor of the dormitory, but I did it on the third floor of the dormitory too, one right over the top of the other. 
So all this water travels down to the basement of the building. It is a huge, disastrous mess. I go to chapel that morning. I look down the hall. First of all, I was my way to chapel. I look down the hallway, and I see some fans in the hallway, and I think, ha, 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 ha. All right, got them. So I go to chapel that morning, and the president gets up, and there's no music. There's no anything. He says, I want to talk to the student body today. He says, last night. Uh-oh. <laughs> and he goes on to talk about what had happened, and he wants the person who's done that to come forward. And I'm thinking, there is no way that that's ever going to happen. Well, the Lord kept pressing on my heart over the course of, this was in the spring, over the course of that spring, over the course of that next summer, every time I go to pray, every time I pick up my Bible, the Lord keeps putting this in front of me, until finally I said, okay, Lord, I'm tired of Eglon in my life. And I went forward to the president at the start of the next school year, knowing that I'm probably on my way right back home, getting expelled. And I know that there was a good bit of dorm damage, that, or, you know, cost that went along with this, and I was prepared to make reparations for it. And I shared with him what I had done, and he said, I appreciate you coming forward to share with me what you had done. Now you need to go down to the dean of students, and the dean of students and I worked it out. We worked out a thing and took care of it. I was able to stay in school. I was shown grace. I was shown mercy. But friends, I would still be living with Eglon today had I not taken responsibility. Had God not brought me to that point of me saying, okay, God, I'm so tired of having this every time I close my eyes to talk to you, then I'm willing to get rid of it. Let me summarize. What does it mean to cry out to God? It means that we avoid the victim mentality. Number two, it means that you save your explanations for later. You may have good explanations, but save them for later. Number three, it means to cry out to God. It means to spare yourself of the way you name what you did. And finally, number four, to cry out to God means that you direct all the consequences of your actions at you. You direct the consequences of your actions at you. Some of us have been living with an Eglon in our life for 18 years, maybe longer. The Israelites lived with it for all that time until finally they got to the point where they said, God, I'm broken. God, I'm ready for this to be resolved. And you know, it's a difficult thing to preach a message like this because it's a difficult thing to follow these steps of taking responsibility. But here's what the Bible promises us. Look at the end of the story again, verse 30. It says, and the Israelites had peace for 80 years. Friends, crying out to God in this way is never easy. But the end is peace. Let's pray. Lord, it is difficult to sit down with your word sometimes. We love the parts that tell us that we can do all things through Christ. But part of what you're saying, God, is we can even do the most difficult things. The stuff, Lord, that we've been dreading, the stuff, Lord, we've been holding at arm's length, perhaps for years. Lord, you want for peace to reign in our lives. And sometimes, Lord, we think, well, I'll just outweigh you. You've got all the time in the world, Lord. 
may we realize, God, that some of the stuff that's going on is frustrating us, nagging at us. It's all an attempt, Lord, for you to bring peace and for you to bring complete healing into our lives. And so, Lord, recognizing you for who you are, even though this is difficult, may we, Lord, in obedience, take those steps forward and release this into your hands and say, okay, God, if this is what you want me to do, if this is what you're asking of me, God, I'll trust you. God, I will have faith in you. Lord, we recognize that Jesus had a very difficult task in front of him. He even prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me. And yet, Lord, recognizing who you are, he was willing to entrust his life to you. Not my will, but yours be done. As we remember this morning, your broken body, Lord Jesus, and your shed blood, give us the confidence, give us the resolve to entrust whatever it is you're asking of us to your hands and to take the steps forward in obedience. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.